Acts chapter 17 and verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. You may take a moment to be seated and reflect on God's word before the preaching. Uh, this morning, instead of the usual suspects uh, preaching, we have uh, Jay Denton, uh, my good friend who is the uh, RUF campus minister at uh, UNCW, and Cape Fear, kind of. Kind of. I mean, you, you lost like some Cape hours. Fear. Yeah. I like Cape Fear. Uh, so, uh, as the guy, uh, one, of, one of the people uh, at our church working with college ministry, Jay has been an incredible asset uh, to our team, uh, to our church. Uh, he uh, regularly meets with and disciples and teaches uh, some of our students from our congregation. And uh, just as a friend, he's been tremendously helpful to me. Um, but uh, what RUF is doing at UNCW is something that really our church and people within our church have been praying for for a really, really long time, which he's teaching the word of God to college students, showing them how to apply it to their life, and really helping walk alongside them, applying the just historic, unchanging truths of the gospel into students' lives. And there's a lot of great campus ministries that do that. RUF has its own kind of little unique flavor. And we're really grateful to have you here to preach to us and have you here on campus along with all of us that work with students at UNCW. So we're really grateful. Jay Denton. Uh, thank you guys for having me. Uh, Sam is a good friend of mine. We've gotten to know each other over the last uh, over a year and a half now uh, that my family's been in Wilmington. Uh, yesterday, I feel like I became a true uh, Wilmingtonian. I put on a wetsuit for the first time. It was more difficult than expected. Uh, I'm sure I, uh, I felt like I looked better than I looked, but I braved 59-degree uh, weather and went, as I'll say, surfing. Uh, in, in the wash while we watched uh, real surfers uh, in the back. Uh, but, uh, but we love Wilmington. We love being here. Uh, it's a joy to partner with local churches. I tell students all the time, 
Uh, the thing that you should do more for your spiritual life and to know Jesus more clearly, more than anything else in college, is not join a campus ministry, of which I am over one. It's to find a local church, to join that church, to become an associate member of that church, and to show up every Sunday, to worship, to serve, and to give your life to a local congregation. I believe that. And so thank you for having me this morning. Uh, there's a pastor uh, in Tennessee by the name of Joe Novenson. Uh, he tells a story, uh, a story maybe you've heard before, uh, of a man who uh, sailed the seas back in the 1700s. Uh, this man, he made his living uh, by making transatlantic voyages, uh, taking uh, various uh, things back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, finally, though, he decided that this last voyage was going to be his last one, that he was going to make America his home, and so he takes his fiancée with him. And, and bad weather comes upon them, the storm is fierce, uh, as, as weather in the Atlantic Ocean often is. Waves higher than houses came crashing over the boat. Uh, thunder clapped all around them. The only light was the flash of lightning cutting through the darkness, not a place that any of us would want to be. The wind roared back and forth, making the night a frightful one. As the man steered the, the, this vessel, this ship, his fiancée came up. His fiancée emerged and, and from below and, and frantically ran toward him. She was weeping. And here's what she said. She said, what are we going to do? And he said, God will see us through this. And the woman said, how can you be sure? The man did something interesting at this point. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of his fiancée being so fearful, he pulled out a sword and he pointed it at his fiancée, almost as if he was in battle with her. And he said this, he said, are you afraid right now? And she said, no. And he said, why not? And she responded, because I know the heart that's behind the hand in which the sword rests. And the sailor said, so it is with I and God. I know the heart behind the hand. You know, Paul just mentioned that some of you may have been here this morning hoping to hear someone say that God is for you, that God is with you, that God is fighting for you. You know, the Apostle Paul in the text that we just read in, in Acts 17, uh, he was having a bit of a rough spell. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 17, uh, Paul was in a place called Thessalonica, and he was preaching the gospel, and people didn't like that. And so, uh, to, for Paul's safety, he was sent away for his protect, protection to a place named Berea. Uh, when he went to Berea, uh, the people in Thessalonica heard that he was teaching again. And remember, they didn't like that. And so they went to Berea, and they caused a ruckus. Uh, the, the, the text tells us that they agitated the crowds so that they would push Paul out of yet another city. And so for Paul's protection, he was put into a boat, and he was sent to Athens, and he was told to wait. Now, Paul was a church planner. He was a missionary. He was a leader. Yet Paul was told to wait after enduring this persecution Athens was a place that was on the decline. We normally associate Athens being the center of intellectual thought in the ancient world. And while it was still a good place, it was not what it once was. And so here we have Paul, this great missionary, walking around Athens, a city that is not as great as it once was. It's remembering its high school days, right, like I often do with my wife who told me yesterday that we're no longer in high school. He's walking around, surely he's depressed, surely he's thinking, why am I here? No. Maybe he's thinking, 
you know, Athens is a historic site now, and, and so much good has happened here. Maybe I should sightsee. Maybe I should walk around and, 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 and take this all in and just rest. And, but, but that's not what he says. Instead, Paul finds himself every single day walking out to the market, talking to people, asking questions, understanding the place in which God has put him. He begins to, to dialogue with Jews. He begins to dialogue with, with, with pagans about faith and life. And, and, and so uh, this city, Athens, being a place where those things are talked about, he was invited to a place called the Areopagus. And they said, hey, tell us this, this new thing that we haven't heard. Tell us about it. And so Paul uh, goes through and he talks to these two different types of people that are found in the Areopagus. One of them, some, somewhat religious, the other, not religious at all. We had the Stoics who, who believed that maybe there were a bunch of gods. Even though they were far gods, there were gods, and morality was important, and obedience was important, but certainly no type of relationship. These were people who were very self-righteous. These were people who had it all together, and they showed it by their intellect and their, by their ability to be morally good. On the other side were the Epicureans who were materialistic in outlook, who aspired uh, to have a, a, a high view of this world and how you should live, but they elevated pleasure. They didn't believe in gods, and if they did believe in the gods, uh, perhaps they too would say that the gods were far from them. And so here we have Paul in this place, not where he planned to be, but what we see is a story of great power. As he proclaims the gospel, there's a couple of things I want us to observe in this text as we continue uh, this study and what it looks like to be a son and a daughter of the living king, to, to, to be a follower of Jesus. The, the, the first is this. Number one, we can see and we can trust that God has us where he wants us. Let me say that again. We can trust that God has us exactly where he wants us. Isn't this what Paul does in Athens? He sees this opportunity. He sees that God has put him there, even though it wasn't according to plan. He takes himself to the market every single day. He walks around Athens. He learns about his surroundings in a very short amount of time, no more than four weeks' time that Paul spends in Athens. He becomes a student of Athens. Verse 17 tells us uh, that he reasoned in the marketplace every day. With those who happen to be there. What is your everyday? Your everyday might not seem as exciting as Paul's everyday. Or maybe you have a missionary or a campus minister come and, and talk to you about their everyday. And it seems a lot harder than your everyday. Paul's everyday was going to the market. It was probably dirty. It probably had all types of good and bad smells. That was Paul's everyday. And he reasoned with people about the truth of the gospel. What's your every day? You see, Paul just didn't, he didn't just show up, but he let his presence be known there. Presence is more than showing up. Just ask my wife. If I just show up to an important conversation with her and play on my phone, the phone will politely and lovingly, because my wife is fantastic, will be taken away from me and put to the side so that I can be present with her. What's your every day? Do you feel as if you're just going through the motions? Do you feel as if uh, everything around you is moving, but perhaps you're standing still? 
There's a difference between just showing up and having a presence for where, where you are. Presence is believing that the heart behind the hand of God has put you there. That he has you in your place for a very, very powerful reason. Paul believes that he's there to communicate God's grace to the people of Athens, to show them the true God, to show them the unknown thing that they worship. But it wasn't his plan to be there. But because he was there, he knew it was God's plan. Let me say that again. Because he was there, he knew that it was God's plan. This happens to me all the time when I'm meeting with students. One of the joys of my job is that, that, that I get to teach in a large group setting on Wednesday nights. Another one is that we uh, lead Bible studies and small groups and ministry teams. But one of the great joys of my job is that I get to sit across a table all over campus with different students and hear their story. Hear about their life, hear about their struggles, hear about what God's teaching them. The good, bad, the hard. That's one of my joys. But one of the things that comes up constantly is, I don't know what I'm going to do next. There's always this focus about what's next. There's always this uncertainty about what's next. But one of the, one of the best things that I get to tell students is that I, I know that there's one thing that's true right now. And it's not that I know your future, but I know that God has called you here to this place to be a student. I know that God has called you to this place to be a student because you are here. That's what Paul understood. You see, even if we find ourselves in places that, 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 that we're not settled or that we don't want to be, for the time being, my friends, that is where Paul has called us. When we are in difficult places, in parenting or in work or in school or in relationships, God has called us into those places and he is working something in us that we cannot see. We can trust that God has us where he wants us. Just a, a little under uh, two years ago, uh, my wife and I showed up in Wilmington, uh, and I remember uh, 2015 freshman move-in UNCW. Most of you probably know this. Some of you, you may not, but move-in is a big day at UNCW. Uh, people from uh, the community come in, uh, sororities and fraternities, and all types of students. Clubs, clubs come in, and they help the students get into the dorms. Well, we were starting up RUF. Reformed University Fellowship had never existed on campus at UNCW. And so all of Reformed University Fellowship showed up that day. One person. Me. I showed up on campus. Uh, I, I helped. Uh, I went and got my T-shirt. I went to Belk Residence Hall, which is where I was assigned. Uh, in, in addition to myself, I, I lied. I also brought in security, awkwardness, and uncertainty uh, as to what I was doing uh, as a, a 30-something-year-old man helping uh, 18-year-old girls move into their dorm rooms. Um, I'm an ENFP on the Myers-Briggs. Uh, I'm an extrovert. Uh, if you uh, spend enough time around me, you will think that I'm always comfortable in my skin. And that is not always true. I can fake it really, really good. Because on that Saturday morning, the only reason that I could put one foot in front of the other was because I trusted the heart behind the hand. Because we moved from a, a community, a job that we loved, pastoring in Raleigh, to move here to work with college students. And we knew that God had called us to that. And I trusted the heart behind the hand that guided me onto that campus that morning. I spent all morning uh, moving boxes, asking questions to different administration and students, uh, probably screaming a lot at cars because that's what you do. You say, welcome to UNCW, all this great stuff. I was, I was becoming more comfortable. Uh, afterwards, they fed us at uh, WAG, 
uh, which is the, the cafeteria. I walked over there with a group of students, and y'all, I was feeling really good. There were like six or seven students. We were all best friends. We had spent all morning together, and then when we got into the cafeteria, they vanished. <laughs> they left me. I was all by myself. Uh, I found a person that I kind of knew, and by kind of, they looked familiar. I sat down with them, and I was exhausted. And I thought, what am I doing here? The student that sat across from me that day is now one of our uh, most involved leaders. So when I was at my worst, when I was exhausted and thought, thought that things weren't going as they should, when I thought I'd botched it, God had much greater plans that I would meet this person who sat across from the table with me. And that person would be a person who invites people to learn about uh, the, the gospel of Jesus, who helps to plan events so that students will come and, and hear the good news of Jesus. You see, in the trusting, we gain a confidence. We gain a permission to begin to engage our own place. Setbacks are allowed. Failure is expected. It just creates more opportunity for the gospel to seep into the cracks of our life. Number one, we can trust that God has us, that God has you exactly where he wants us. We can trust God with that. We can trust the heart behind the hand. Number two, we can trust that God has others where he wants them. You know, Paul begins to explain to these uh, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers uh, that the true God does not need man. Verse 24 says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he says to him, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He had just seen all these temples and all these statues scattered all throughout Athens where the gods resided or the gods were represented. But he tells them, our God, the true God, the one God, cannot live in these temples. Your work is not enough. Your work is not big enough or good enough for the true God. Verse 25 says, he's not served by human hands. These ideas would have been in direct opposition to those philosophers of the day. Some of them would have agreed half-heartedly, but it would have pushed them a little bit too far in their belief. Have you ever been in that situation as the religious person in your family? As a religious person in your work where either people think you're absolutely crazy or they just think he's he or she is just a little bit more spiritual than I am. Paul's proclaiming the gospel. He's proclaiming that God doesn't live in temples made by human hands. You know, what I find in this Uh, in verses 24 all all the way to 28, really, is that it's encouraging to know that even when people disagree with us, even when they disagree with how we view God or how they they, they view uh, religion, if, if they think we go too far with saying that Christ is the one and only way, I find it encouraging that the God that they deny is still in control of their lives. And it's not just that. He's in control. He's put them in the places where they work and eat and live so that, verses 26 and 27 tell us, they might even find him. You see, this should change the way that we understand our place. This should bring power to our place because God puts other people around us. And God will use us, our brokenness, our failures, our joys, our successes. He will use all those things in order to be a conduit to bring other people to himself. 
I get the joy of seeing that every single day on campus, and not even just through the ministry of RUF, but through ministries like Crew and Young Life, through ministries that, 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 that are investing in the lives of other people that actually believe that God is going to use them because God is at work in other people's lives. And it's a beautiful and a powerful thing when God's people begin to believe that God is at work in those around us. You see, I think sometimes we believe that God has us where he wants us. But we tend to forget that in God's plan, he has others exactly where he wants them. That should bring immense freedom. This past January, uh, we, we had a coffee and donuts night. Just before the, the first day of classes in the spring semester, uh, we invited all of our students, anybody at UNCW that wanted to come, uh, who were looking to connect, but especially students who, this would be their first day of classes at UNCW. There's a, a contingent of, of students at UNCW that come in in the spring semester that weren't here in the fall. I had one guy come up to me, and this is how uh, our interaction went. He said, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm not a Christian, and I'm probably not going to become one. Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> we had a chance to talk, and uh, he, he had a chance to meet some people. Over the course of the last six weeks, uh, this student has been, has been building relationships with students in RUF. He's been coming to our large group worship. He's been engaged in a small group Bible study. We've been meeting, he and I, reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And recently, I asked him as we sat outside on one of these wonderful Wilmington days, I asked him, has your view of Christianity changed in the last six weeks? And his response was, oh, yeah. I mean, if I become a Christian, it'll probably be through a book like this or through music that I've heard of large group. And the people around me, they've been real. And I've been able to ask questions and not been ridiculed and this and that and the other. Here's what God has done to that student. He has cocooned him with, words, with, the, with God's word. He has cocooned him with the community of faith, not just hanging out. You can find that anywhere at college. But there's something special about a Christian community that's imperfect, that believes the gospel. God has this student exactly where he wants him, and we get to see that. Do we believe it? Do we believe that God is at work in such a way that it's not always up to us? But for you students, who you sit beside in class is not random. For you people who are trying to get out of the work that you're in, maybe God's having you stay there for just a little bit longer. Friends, what confidence we can and should have in the places that God has put us because he is putting people around us that need the gospel. We do not have to work in a cool downtown loft office. We do not have to be a missionary to an unknown people group. We do not have to kill ourselves trying to manufacture relationships for the gospel. This should be freeing to us. Instead, we can begin to see those who are around us as people that God has timely placed in our offices, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our social circles. One thing I love about this church is that you invest in those communities around you. And you can take confidence that God is going to do things in that that one day you will be able to celebrate on earth, potentially. Maybe you hear good news of a student who lives in a rundown area, who's given his life to Christ and who's doing great things. But one day, we will celebrate. When Jesus makes all things new, we will celebrate the reality of the work that, that he is accomplishing through us in a place because he is at work in other people's lives. We can trust 
We can trust the heart behind the hand that puts people in our life. We can invest deeply. That's what Paul did. Even in verse 28, he, he spoke, he quoted their own poets. He, he understood them. We can trust that God has others where he wants them. Number three, we can trust in God's truth. We see in, in these last verses, 29 through 34, uh, we see the reality of God's truth and we, we see results. We see that God is at work in these verses. Paul's aware uh, that God has him in this particular place. He, he's sure that God has put those around him for a reason. But his life and calling doesn't let him simply befriend them. Now, I'm all about befriending people as a Christian. But the gospel does not let us stay there because we have the same boat. Or because we, say, we go to the same access at Wrightsville Beach. He doesn't just let Paul argue with them or debate opposing philosophies. Instead... Paul shows that he trusts in God's truth, that he trusts in the gospel story. Being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art of imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It goes on to talking about Jesus. By a man whom he has appointed And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This would have been crazy to those philosophers. You know, RUF, the ministry that I work with, we're committed to preaching the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, in one week, these are the things I had to teach on. Judgment, election, and the sinful flesh. Now, trust me, when I started to plan uh, the semester out, I didn't plan on that trifecta in one week. Okay, we don't we don't just pick the hardest things to talk about. But when we preach through the book of Revelation that we're doing on Wednesday nights or or when we talk about theology and what that means or or when I'm called to preach in in churches and and given text, I want to honor the scriptures. We can take confidence. We can trust in God's truth. We know the heart behind the hand that leads us into those things, because here's what I find. The, the, The reality of God's judgment, it led us straight to God's grace. To show us our need for that. The reality of our sinful flesh it enabled us to see that we are not perfect and that we are in need of a Savior. The reality of election tells us that we can trust God. That he has us and that he will keep us. When Paul presented the truth of the gospel, the simple, beautiful gospel, people, some of them mocked. Some of them were opposed to the things uh, that are very foundational to us as Christians. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. They were indifferent. Some mocked, some were indifferent. But some men joined and believed. We can trust in God's truth. You see, God's put you in a particular place. You can trust him. You can trust the heart behind the hand. You know that he's at work around you. And you know that you can trust in his truth. Just a couple of implications about the power of our place, and then we're done. First is this, that that this understanding of of what we see in Paul's life and what Paul teaches in the midst of this circumstance is that there is great dignity in our calling to mission. Whether your biggest issue uh, coming home at the end of the day is dirt in your fingernails from working the ground or dandruff on your suit, you have great dignity. Whether you've changed 84 diapers in one day 
or whether you so desire to have children and can't, there is great dignity in where God has you right now and to the mission that he's called you. You are not less of a person because you can't get up here and talk. You are not less of a Christian. Your mission field is not less important because you don't belong to the country club or it's not less important because you do. There's great dignity in our calling and mission. We can believe that God will use us. Simple as that. What happens when the people in this room believe again, believe anew every single day that God will use you? We begin to see more ways that he's already doing it, not ways that he will. We have permission to rest. You see, anytime we talk about mission, anytime we talk about sharing our faith, some people get really stressed out. And I get that. But when we believe this understanding of the power of our place, we can actually rest because it's not up to us. We know that God is at work. We can have a greater confidence in taking the gospel to our world. And finally, an implication of this is that we have an understanding that we're not alone. Because you see, God's at work in you, but as you look around this room, as you look to the person next to you, whether they're 87 or 8, God's at work in their life, in the place that God has put them. All of our trusting in God for the places he has put us is because he made a place here with us. Because he came as a baby to this place. Because on that place, on that hill, on that cross, he died. Because in that place, in that tomb, he was put. And now in that place, on that throne, he reigns. That is why we can have the confidence that our place matters. Charles Spurgeon says this, The way to be transformed into the likeness of God is to live in the company of God. And that is right where you are.